Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each episode, we speak with national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. And it's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. This episode, we are joined by Brittany Whaley, Southeast Regional Director of the Working Families Party. Now, there's a lot to unpack just when we mention the Working Families Party, and we will get there. But the reason that I invited Brittany to join us today is because she is a core organizer in the the struggle to stop Cop City in Atlanta, Georgia. And we need to understand what's happening in Atlanta and its implications for the whole world, let alone just for for little old us, you know, on Turtle Island um, in the U.S. Um, It really does have implications in urban areas and just the way that we police around the country Um, and, you know, and also the world that we're building for the next generations. So Brittany's going to help us break that down. Now, we'd love to hear your thoughts thread or Insta or Facebook me. Um, You can thread or Insta me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. Plus, we're on Substack and Patreon um, at Freedom Road. And, you know, we want you to keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and let us know what you think as well. Okay. All right. Well, let's dive in, Brittany. So, Brittany, normally what we do when we when we start, um, you know, we are we are all about understanding the different layers of our stories. And we we try to start with kind of like the core, the spirit, the soul. So I don't know if you are a person of faith, but if you are, would you mind sharing with us your story? And if you aren't, um, you know, where do you get your grounding? Yeah, I would love to. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, so I was I was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I start there and say I was raised in a Southern Baptist church, which for some people, they're like, where do I place you, right? <laughs> How does that happen? That's really but true. <laughs> Las Vegas and Southern Baptist doesn't go together. Yeah, yeah. So both <laughs> my mom and dad are from Louisiana. And oh. a lot of the Black folks who moved to Vegas are from Louisiana, Mississippi, and Arkansas. And so oh. I grew up in what felt like, and I didn't know it until I moved, a Southern Baptist church. Um, so I grew up, my dad was a deacon. My dad baptized me. Um, grandmother had me in the choir at like six, seven, you know, so like, you know, was it a black Um, Baptist church or, you know, like your typical white Southern Baptist church? Cause those are two, also two very different experiences. It is. And I should, I should clarify. So it was a black Baptist church that, yeah, you need to clarify (laughs) Definitely. now that I, yeah. Um, Now that I think about it, but yeah, it was a black Baptist church. And what I mean by Southern, I mean, geographically folks Uh, were from the South. And so they were the black people who moved West. um, In the great migration. Yeah. Okay. That can I just say very quickly, when I lived out in Los Angeles, um, I had, I was new out there. I was like, I I was raised in Philadelphia, um, grew up in Philly and then also was spent some time in New York as well. And those folks, when they trace their ancestry, generally speaking, um, in Philly, everybody in my my grandmother's neighborhood is all from the same community in Camden, South Carolina. Like 
<laughs> like they all the Camden folk literally moved into South Philly in the same blocks. Like literally everybody's from Camden, South Carolina. Um, and then you go out to other parts of Philadelphia and it's other parts of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. So I was used to that. And then, you know, when you go up to Chicago, almost everybody's from Mississippi because that was the one train that left from Mississippi. It went up to Chicago. And I was so, I was, I don't know why I was shocked, but it just, you know, the pattern continued when I went out to LA. Everybody was from Texas or Louisiana um, or Arkansas, right? So then now I'm learning something new because it wasn't just LA or California. It's also Vegas. Like I didn't realize we went to Vegas too. Wow. All right. Yeah, we're there. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know. Like I really literally learned something new right now. Okay, good. Thank you. I was, I was going to say, the only other thing I was going to say is, you know, when I came into what, what I feel like was my spiritual grounding was really in college. So you grow mm-hmm. up in the church and you learn the things. And again, it feels like home because of the community that's there. Um, but but when I went to Howard, I joined a, a, a gospel choir and I joined the prayer ministry. And that really helped deepen my faith, especially when you're praying for other people. Right. So there's like a a power in that. And I think it really helped me on my journey, you know, like as a young adult. And that's that's what more so I think cemented it for me. That is so cool. Thank you so much for that, Brittany. I mean, I, I really do appreciate that. And it's also pretty I mean, I did college ministry for a long time, for 10 years. And, you know, we don't really give prayer it's due. Just the act of praying actually leads to a deepening of faith. That's pretty cool. So can I ask you, how did you come to work for the Working Families Party? Yeah. So I started working for the Working Families Party in 2013, mm-hmm. uh, about 10 years ago. And I I, I did all the, the things in DC. So I was on Capitol Hill. I went, I worked for a lobby shop. I'm like, I need to learn how, you know, how does our government work? Mm. And then I decided I wanted to be closer to people. I felt a little disconnected. So I quit my job and I um, applied for a position on the Obama campaign in Virginia. Wow. So I started as an organizer, and as an organizer, you had to build neighborhood teams. You had to know people's stories, why they actually cared. And during that time, it was a lot of bills that were being pushed in the in the House to repeal Obamacare, right? Because yes. that was on the reelection campaign. Mm-hmm. So I really started to like connect different issues. So it was like the electoral. Lane, sure. But it was also like, why people are doing this? Why do people care about our politics? What's their skin in the game, right? Mm-hmm. So when I le- when when the Obama campaign, when we won and I was unemployed. Um, that's- <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? Winning gets you unemployed. <laughs> well, losing would too, actually. But yeah, that, that's hilarious. That's funny. I was like, we did this awesome thing. And I also need to explore some options. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Well, can I just say on behalf of the world, thank you so much for doing so well in your work. Thank you. With the campaign. Thank you. But no, that really just opened up something for me. And so I had had several conversations and had a conversation with someone at the New York Working Families Party about getting into progressive politics and Mm -hmm. really wanting to do like local and state politics and she's like, oh, well, we may be hiring soon. And it's a position that would, you know, it's a political organizer and you would identify, recruit and train people to run for office. And in my mind, I was like, I have no idea, like, 
people are paid to do this thing. And so I I signed up. I was like, okay, yes, I'm gonna put my hat wow. in the ring. And it was then that I it was really in, in through New York Working Families Party, and I spent some time doing some other positions and came back to Working Families Party in 2019. But it was through that role that I was able to see that we can actually change the choices. And so I worked with um, labor organizers and leaders who ran for office. I was campaign manager and a political director, all the things. Hmm. But what I also got to do was find people in the community who were doing um, like they would have a nine to five and they would come home and organize in their communities around tenant rights, around things like stop signs and having safe communities. Right. And like wow. really train them on how to run for office, giving them the tools and skills. Huh. Because We know that they have the heart to do it. They have the heart to serve because they're already doing it and they're mm-hmm. already in right relationship with their communities. Mm. So we just have to give them the tools and the skills and prepare them and really open up their minds to the idea that, Yes, you represent people in your community, but you can represent your districts and you can actually inform the policymaking process. Wow. Wow. So you did that work for how long? So I did that work for about uh, three or four years um, oh with gosh. New York Working Families Party. And then I, I went on to join an organization where I, I train organizers and leaders across the country. Um to run for office, to run campaigns and really thinking about how we do it. So it's not just about like running a campaign and winning. It's about building the infrastructure and the ecosystem that we need mm. to not just win on election day, but to win on the issues and to continue winning yeah. with people who know, like they know it intrinsically, they know because they live it. Mm-hmm. They know what is needed in communities. So that ingenuity mm. is there and we have to make sure that we are giving people the the tools and working with them, learning from people. Because every community I enter and every community I organize in is different. And so acknowledging the richness, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I, I did that um, across the country for a while. And then I came back to Working Families Party in 2019 to build our party in the Southeast. And so that's what... Oh, that's wow. So, now. <laughs> so you've been with them. You've been with the Southeast region for what is that now? Four years for four, four years, about four years. How about yeah. that? So can I ask you, what's the history of the Working Families Party? I mean, I, I, you know, I honestly wasn't even aware it was a thing until maybe the like around maybe around 20, 2008, like so 2008 in that election cycle, I started to hear that that word more like, oh, there are candidates in a working family. Before that, I always heard about the Green Party as a third party candidate or something like that, but not working families. So can you tell us a little bit about the party and how it came to be? And what are the what's like, what's the goal of the party? Or vision, the vision of the party? Um, gladly. Okay. We, we founded in 1998 in New York. Oh. Um, in order to really understand, you have to understand fusion voting. So election law is different in every single state in our country. Okay. And so when people say we have a two-party system, we mostly do. But there are a few states in our country where there's something called fusion voting. And so fusion voting allows for um, for you to, like Lisa, you can run on the Democratic ballot line and mm-hmm. the Working Families ballot line, mm-hmm. and those votes will be tabulated and that will be your total number of votes. And so we were able to use fusion voting Mm -hmm. in a way that allowed us to show up as a progressive political party and not be a spoiler. And so that's what you normally hear when people talk about third parties. 
their immediate response is, oh, we can't do that because you run spoiler candidates and we end up with, you know, candidates we don't want. And so our approach is, and our, our national director always says, like, we cook with what we have in the kitchen, right? And so, like, for the states where we have fusion voting, we use fusion voting. So in New York, Connecticut, um, I think it was in Oregon. It was in South Carolina until they, they recently banned it. But in those states, we actually use a ballot line. And that tells people that they have been vetted, these candidates have been vetted, and that they are progressive candidates. Mm-hmm. In other states... We use the Democratic ballot line and we run progressive candidates, right? And what I mean by that is when we say party, we think of people organizing around shared platform to build governing power, right? right? Mm-hmm. And so if you if you look at that and look at the ways people are organizing and how we've created a political home and an electoral vehicle, them having a space across movement and across um, different organizations to really have an impact in our politics, then you'll see that you start to shift away from our priorities being organized money and, um, you know, exploitation of workers to a platform that is for the many, not just the elite few. And so the issues. No, no. Well, you know what? Just break that down for us. Cause I feel like, um, I, I mean, I'm barely getting it. I'm barely understanding. And so I can imagine that there are people out there who are listening, who are going, uh, what? Like, you know, like, it's like, so like, you know, cause when you say it allows you to, I mean, I don't doubt you. I just want you to be a little more clear, like, like really break it down for us. Like we're in third grade. If you were going to explain this to a third grader, how would you explain it? Yeah. I would say that there are people who are organizing around issues to impact the way their policy, their, the way their government works to inform their policy and to make sure that their voices are heard. Mm-hmm. And they do this by electing candidates that fully represent the issues that they care about. And so whether they do it on the Democratic ballot line or Working Families Party ballot line, we are organizing people and we think about it in different. We talk about it as though it's a stool, right? Mm-hmm. Like a sitting stool. And we think about social movements. We think about um, progressive labor. We think about member organizations or people's organizations, mm-hmm. and we think about individuals. Mm-hmm. And all of these folks across groups and across organization and formations believe that our government should work for the many and not just the elite few. So you don't have to have money. You don't have to be degreed. You don't have to you know, check certain boxes for you to see yourself in your government and for your government to be informed by policies that are more intersectional in, in as a framework. So what what I hear you saying is that the Working Families Party is always going to coalesce around policies that prioritize families, like the working families, like people who are workers and people who are laborers, people who who are close to the earth, you know, close to the ground, and therefore have a really good understanding of what it, what bringing equity into the world would would require of us. Is that right? And so, and what you, by, by getting as many people as possible um, to vote around those values, around um, with that, with those priorities, your goal is to shift the power 
from that dark money or from like um, electoral, like organizing money to organizing people because people have votes. Money might have influence, but people have votes. And so, and the, the belief is that I got all this just from your, I mean, I mean, I really have. The belief is that um, because there, basically there's more of us than there are of them, our votes can go a long way if we all voted together for these, for these priorities. Is that right? Did I get that right? Yes. I will next time tell people that you can speak about working families party. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think she has it. Hey, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I really, I've literally <laughs> never spoken ever to a working families party person. So I'm like, let's, let's like, let's dig into this. Let's actually try to understand this thing. Cause I've only understood it to be, Oh, you know, I think honestly, I think <laughs> I think I'm still scarred from 2020, right? Like from uh, from the the spoiler candidate in the Green Party that happened there, right? So, like that's just uh, it's just it's scary. It's a scary thing for me. So interesting, and because you're coalescing around issues, you're able to have working family party people run on the Democratic ticket to move even the Democrats toward those issues. Is that right? Yeah. And, and, you know, honestly, like at the core of this is also, um, you know, just us thinking about taking it from being so transactional, you know, Mm -hmm. where people just come and they ask us to vote for them Mm -hmm. and then that's it, you Mm -hmm. know, so taking it from that to a posture of co-governance, Like, what does it mean to have Mm. people's voices represented, to have them as stakeholders and to engage them Mm. right around the issues? Because you're not making decisions for people. You should be making decisions with people, Mm. with your constituencies. So can I ask you now, this is a really great way to segue into this. What is Cop City and how did the Working Families Party come to intersect with that struggle in Atlanta? Yeah, so Cop City is a um, training facility for police officers and firefighters. And it was proposed under Keisha Lance Bottoms, our former mayor, in 2021. Wow. Really? And what it is, mm-hmm, yeah, it was 2021. No, and- no, I, it's not that I'm, I'm not surprised at 2021. I'm surprised that she is the one who proposed it. That's deep. Let me say this. It was proposed under while she was mayor. Okay. So in the council, when it came to council for um, for a vote in 2021, there were about 16 or 17 hours of public comment. Okay. 70% of those comments were um, in opposition to the project. Okay. When you when you ask what is the project, right. it's 80 yeah. Plus acres of of land that would be that is currently a forest, the Wilani Forest, mm. um, one of the lungs of Atlanta. And mm. what's happening is they're tearing down all the all the trees, cutting down all the trees, um, taking the forest land away to build this training facility in um, in DeKalb County in a predominantly black neighborhood. Wow! What? 
So wait a minute. So there's like all these intersecting issues that are, woo, like, I mean, like all my sirens are going off. So not only do you have the issue of climate change, um, climate health, that is a major issue in, in, in communities of color. So it's a rare thing, actually, to have communities of color that have significant green space. So now you have this incredible forest that is right next to, adjacent to, or in a Black community. And now the cops are mowing down the trees. Like you can't, you just can't get, you can't get a worse picture, a a worse look than that. What? Yeah. I mean, and and the other thing is it is, uh, so it is the, it is a public-private partnership. It is a contract between the city of Atlanta and the Atlanta Police Foundation, supported by the, um, Atlanta Police Foundation are all the corporations you can think of in in Atlanta: Home Depot, UPS, um, Chick Fil A, Delta, et cetera, et cetera. Why? Listing. Like, what is their interest in building a cop city? Like, basically taking down all of this green space and having what is like? Is it is it basically like they're building a like a military outpost for cops? It like, is a state of the art, Lisa. I'm going to bring you down here. <laughs> I just I just landed a gig, y'all. I mean it's clicking. I'm getting it. Like what? It is a militarized state of the art training facility where the reason we we dubbed it as Cop City is because there will be a mock city inside of this training facility where they have grocery stores, nightclubs, or, you know, all these, these scenarios that I'm assuming they create for the purpose of training. And we are concerned that there is a militarization of police because in, as this process and the, the referendum campaign is one thing, but there have been a number of movements, organizations and formations that have been fighting against this. And I would be mm-hmm. remiss if I didn't honor them mm-hmm. because they have occupied the forest to stop the construction. Mm-hmm. There has been a, a protester who was killed um, as wow. they were trying to protect the land. Um, there have been legal observers who have been charged with domestic terrorism as they are trying to, again, serve as legal observers. There have most recently been RICO charges against racketeering charges against um, 60 plus individuals connected to Cop City. And so all these scare tactics um, are being employed by the by the government. And on, you know, on top of that, Folks are still saying, so I I guess I should say, you know, in spite of that, Mm -hmm. folks are still doubling down on our commitment to stop this project from happening. But there is no doubt that this is a way to further militarize our police. When we have protests in our cities, you see military tanks on our streets. Yes. That's not an adequate response to people trying to express their First Amendment rights. Now, I, the funny thing is, is that I thought we kind of dealt with this, you know, militarization of the police and like, like basically talked it off the wall, like spoke it down, protested it down around Ferguson because I, I was there, you know, on uh, Florissant Boulevard in Ferguson or Florissant Avenue. And I saw that, I mean, they're not, I don't know if they were tanks, but they were very close to tanks. I mean, they were, they were absolutely military grade um, gear uh, vehicles 
and weapons that those those cops those like like little not even you can't even call that a city it's more like a town those little town cops were carrying around like i like weapons that literally were used in iraq so i know that history i know the history of the militarization of the police that began in the 1990s as literally as america's uh, military were trying to figure out what to do with all these weapons that were kind of left over from from the desert storm and they began to sell bid these um these uh, uh military grade weapons to small town police departments that then began to eat them up and that's where we got ferguson from that's where we got the militarization of the and, and nobody can can forget what happened there um the the shooting into the crowd the the um shooting flares into the into the crowd i mean i had friends who were literally hit by rubber bullets there um, and, but I haven't heard a whole lot about the militarization of the police since then, because we spoke out against it so strong. I don't know. I just, I thought, okay, we, we decided not to do that in America. Good. But what you're telling me is that, no, we actually didn't decide not to do that. They kind of maybe just went underground and now they're coming up and we can see it. And it's like full on military bases is what you're really describing here is a military base um, like you would have boot camp for the military. This is like boot camp for cops. That's scary. And it would be for cops in Atlanta and the region. And it would be in our backyard. And so the other piece wow. around this is, you know, this is the bedrock of the civil rights movement. Right. Yes. And we're very proud of that. So how do you hold that? Um, and and really, I mean, it's a wrestle at at best, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're holding that, and you're also contending with the fact that you want to have this this militarized training facility to suppress voices. Um, and it, it, you know, we think that there should be a public outcry. That's why we are still, you know, we're we're still at it and have done everything that we can to, st- and we'll continue to do everything that we can to stop it. These are our stories. You are listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. So, Brittany, let me ask you this. What is the goal of the movement that has been garnered against Cop City? I think there are a few goals. Mm -hmm. One, obviously... We were inside of a conversation about how we reimagine public safety. Yep. We understand that um, our police and law enforcement, they don't reduce crime, they respond to it. And so if we really want to get at the crux of what is causing crime, then you would address poverty, you know, additional resources to communities, green space, the very thing you're tearing down, all these, all of these things and, and health um, you know, affordable quality health, all of these factors are determinants, right? Mm-hmm. And so we would address like root causes. That's mm-hmm. one. Also within public safety and reimagining that, we have to stop going to solutions that simply put more money into training because we also understand that this is a cultural thing. 
right? There's a reason why Black residents in in Atlanta are 14 times more likely, Latino residents three times more likely to be arrested for for um, for low um, I'm I'm saying low income, um, low level um, nonviolent crimes. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that comes from Southern Center for Human Rights. And they have a lot of research on this. Wow. You know, we cannot simply go to training solutions. We cannot double down on commitments to public safety by doing more of the same. And so we just and I, I'm going to say this last thing. I'll go on to the next one. We just had a presidential cycle in 2020 where we had candidates apologizing publicly for the war on on drugs, uh, the 1994 crime bill, yep, and all of these policies, yeah, that led to mass incarceration, mm-hmm. and were ultimately bad decisions, bad policy decisions. Yep, right. Mm-hmm. So it's also, you know, to be in this moment, I feel like we and and movement feels like we need to continue to advance those conversations and understand that more money and resources into uh, into penalizing poverty, because that's essentially what you're doing in many cases, mm-hmm. is not the solution. Mm-hmm. So that's one, public safety. The second is environmental concerns. Mm-hmm. We cannot tear down or cut down 80 plus acres of the Wilani Forest, understanding the environmental impact that it will have on mm-hmm. Atlanta and the region. Yeah, which also impacts public safety, actually. I mean, in major ways, you tear down all those trees and you're not going to have the trees that you need. You're not going to have uh, the air filters that you need. So more people are going to get cancers, are going to get um, different. They're going to have more particulates in the air and there'll be and especially people of color. But that's not like you can't even just say it's only people of color because that impacts the whole system. I get it. I absolutely get that. Wow. So it's actually, you really can say all of this is about public safety, even the climate change and um, uh, the environmental factors. Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with you. And I, I feel like people from all walks of life, <laughs> and I really mean this, um, you know, are stepping up to speak out. I think the other piece is our democracy and public resources. So mm-hmm. when this project was first introduced, they said it would cost $30 million of public funding and the Atlanta Police Foundation will raise the other $60 million. Hmm. Now we're up to the project costing $60 million, $60 plus million to the public. And so there's also a question about our public resources and it's connected to our democracy issues because we're now, we have petitioned. So we have 116,000 signatures that we have collected around the city of Atlanta. Wow. Saying that we want to call this to a question, or I'm sorry, we want to call this question and we want a direct vote mm-hmm. on whether or not this project should advance. Mm-hmm. We've been met with resistance at every level. Mm-hmm. However, when we're talking about this, we're talking about letting the people of Atlanta decide whether this project moves forward. Wow. Wow, folks. Listen, if you are if you are listening and you are in Atlanta, this is about you and your life. This is about the quality of your life and your children's lives going forward. This is not just a head conversation. This is about right now. And we're, by the time we get to this in this conversation, we will be talking about things that you can do. But I'm just really struck by that, Brittany, that this is practical. Like we're talking about 
We're talking about higher levels of cancer. We're talking about higher levels of asthma in children. Um, I know this because I got my start in organizing in the environmental justice um, community in New York City, interestingly enough, right? And and we all know the South Bronx has um, you know, has the highest rates of asthma, the highest rates of some cancers because of the fact that there's very or was very little green space. And, you know, we say green space, that's a very, um, that can be like a very movementy kind of a word. I, I remember they were talking brown space and green space for a full on year before I ever realized what they were talking about. <laughs> like they were literally like, you know, talking around me or at, at, at you know, meetings or conferences and somebody who was an, an, an environmental organizer would say, you know, we need more green space. All we have is brown space. And I literally, I literally thought they were talking about like a brown square on a map. I don't even, and I thought maybe it was zoning or something. I have no idea. But what we mean by that is we literally mean parks. We mean trees. We mean areas that don't have trees. And when you don't have trees or, or parks or plants, you know, in public, public spaces with large swaths of, of plants, you don't have the, um, the, the filtering of the air that is a natural filter. And so those particulates go up there and they cause what they call heat islands, right? They cause areas to kind of bake because the heat can't get out. Um, because it hasn't been filtered. And on top of that, those particulates hang in the air and we breathe them. And when we breathe them, we're basically breathing in cancer and things that cause asthma and other things as well. Also, I mean, without parks, you don't have very good walking space, right? So people can, they, they, they tend to be less healthy because there's not anywhere to go exercise, you know, those kind of things. So, so can I, can I move us forward? I have another question for you. Um, you know, there are all kinds of rumors right now about the organizers of Cop City. You actually mentioned a couple of those people, like one of them, one died. Um, another one, many have been charged with RICO, right? So, and we all know RICO because of because of the president's case. But this is not Fani, um, you know, uh, um, doing this case. She's not the one who brought this RICO charge, although she's RICO lady, right? No, this was your attorney general, am I right? Your attorney general of, of Georgia um, brought this RICO charge. If I'm wrong, just let me know. No, that's correct. Wow, I got that right. So the attorney general of Georgia, of the state of Georgia, decided to come in and actually charge these local organizers with RICO? I mean, isn't RICO like racketeering? Aren't you supposed to be trying to make some money when you're doing RICO or make some power or do something? You know what I mean? Like, how it is can you? Sophisticated, organized crime. Yeah, <laughs> crime. But since when is it a crime? When is it a crime to organize? You know what I mean? Like to actually protest. Isn't that like protected by our First Amendment rights? That is exactly our argument. Okay. Right. So when I say the state is using all of the weight they have to come down on us mm -hmm. in all different facets, right? And so you have the state attorney general, who mm -hmm. is a Republican, mm -hmm. and the governor, who is a Republican, echoing some of the same sentiments in one way or another as the mayor, who is a Democrat. And so I want people to also understand this is with huh. nuance, right? Yeah. Like, 
it's not a red or blue. Yeah. I think that the way organized money has worked, I think the way the political class has worked in Atlanta, it is completely, I, you know, I assert that it is disenfranchising folks who are everyday people, working mm-hmm. class people, mm-hmm. working poor, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to thinking about solutions that could help people. Wow. It is doing more of the same. Wow. More of the same. And you're talking about Democratic, Republican alike are basically just, when you say more of the same, the picture that I get is people are just going about their business as if nothing's happening. Yeah. And I also think specifically when I say that, I mean that there is a certain level of privilege Uh that you must be able to have to ignore this Mm -hmm. and to see how dire this is Mm -hmm. to working class folks in Atlanta. Mm. Right. And so when you talk about it, Atlanta, you have a political establishment that has aligned itself with business, with the city too busy to hate, et cetera. Right. But what you're also doing in that, as you also know, we have displacement issues in Atlanta, a number of other issues. Mm-hmm. You're leaving folks behind. Mm. So the more of the same is creating policy that is not inclusive of or, or in, in the I'm sorry, it's not inclusive of the people who need it the most. And it is not centering their needs. Yeah. You know, and I mean, honestly, I would take it a step further. It's not only not centering. You're right. It's not centering their needs, but it's actually it's instituting something that is going to be a detriment to their, their, their bodies, their families. People will die. They will die from asthma. They will die from cancer. They will die from over-policing and militarized. We are going to have more. It's basically you're setting up a world where we're going to have more um, of what happened in Ferguson, not less. That's deep. That's some deep stuff right there. So let me ask you this. How does the question of race itself intersect with Cop City? Yeah, so we we talked about, you know, the the statistic from Southern Center for Human Rights. Um, They also talk a lot about excessive use of force. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we talk about public safety, we think about those instances where there have been, you know, um, an escalation, right? And there, and it has cost people lives. So we're in the city where Richard Brooks was killed, right? Um, mm-hmm. Folks know that because it was it was nationalized. Mm-hmm. But there are many different instances where black people are more likely to get pulled over for those nonviolent offenses or for traffic stops and what have you, and that escalates. Mm-hmm. Um, it intersects with right, like the you named this right and pulled it out so eloquently. But the environmental racism mm-hmm. is another piece of this, mm-hmm. right? Um, the 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 public resources piece. You have to also understand that you, we are making this is a decision point. Mm-hmm. And so what we're doing with that, that sixty million dollars being spent on a training facility means it can't go to poverty reduction. It can't go to other programs that will allow people to actually thrive and live their lot, you know, food deserts, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that that's a choice point. Mm-hmm. And it's also what we've seen his historic disinvestment in communities. And this is not 
an anomaly to Atlanta, mm-hmm. right? When you look at poor cities, you can point to neighborhoods where there has been an intentional disinvestment. And that is considered, in my opinion, um, institutional racism and violence. Yeah. Because it's a decision point. You're actively deciding not to invest in communities so they can thrive. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. So, Brittany, if not Cop City, then what is the alternative to achieve public safety? Well, I think we talked about this earlier. Um, When we talk about public safety, we should talk about who feels safe. Some people don't feel safe with okay. additional police, um, additional police presence, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, because of those things that we outlined earlier, and we also understand that public safety is best addressed, and this is from a number of studies, is best addressed when you connect to the root cause and start to really address those things, mm-hmm. right? And so, what we fight for at Working Families Party are the things that would actually reduce crime and promote public safety, right? Right. Whether it's healthcare, so people have access to affordable healthcare and quality healthcare, quality schools, the green space that you're talking about, not just for the environmental impacts, but also you want to take your children to the park. You want your children to roam free. That is a part Mm -hmm. of how you feel safe, right? To coexist with your neighbors in your community. Mm -hmm. All of these, you want to teach your kids the the full and rich history of our country, Mm -hmm. right? Some Mm -hmm. of it is not good, but we need to make sure that we teach it and move past it. However you reconcile. Mm -hmm. All of these things, in our opinion, contribute to quality of life and to public safety. Yeah. So what are the stakes? What's at stake here? Oh, <laughs> you know, honestly, we're, we're in a fight right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in a fight in our city. We're in a fight in our state, which means we're a fight. We're in a fight in our country. And what do I mean by that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right now, 116,000 people in Atlanta have said they want to see this on the ballot. They want to decide. You may say, well, why does this impact me? One, it impacts us because as we talk about public safety, we really should reimagine. And we've already talked about that. Mm-hmm. But two, these are some of the same vote. When Biden won Georgia, he won by 11,000 votes. That's right. So when we talk about you coming to us asking for a vote, regardless of who you are, what level of government, Working Families Party is saying we need to start at the issues because people are engaged because they want to see they want to change material conditions mm-hmm. in their communities. Mm-hmm. This is one of those issues. It and so is. we need our government to act. And we also need to understand. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Georgia had the Georgia had the, the runoff election that sent the two senators, Democratic senators to to Congress. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. We were the difference between not having the major- between having the majority and not. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We delivered for Biden. Mm-hmm. It is a changing state. Mm-hmm. If you want to keep the state, you have to really engage and it has to start with the issues. And so this is not just a 
Atlanta fight. It's not a Georgia fight. It really is a fight that our country should be looking at. So you made a jump there, and I want to I wanna just pause here for a second and, and kind of help us to connect these dots. But you made a jump from this is an Atlanta, this is an Atlanta fight, but it's not just Atlanta. It is the nation and it is the national fight because Georgia is important in the election cycle. I want to be, I want to be clear that the reason why we are talking about Cop City right now is not just so we can win in 2024. Although, hey, we need, we as in, as in people who love justice, who love, I believe, who love God and who follow brown colonized indigenous Jesus, um, who, uh, who said, you must love the least of these. If you even think, if you even come close to loving me, think you're loving me. Um, yeah, yeah, we actually really do need that, um, those values to win in 2024. Um, that said, I think there's, there's other reasons for us to, to care about Cop City, and we've talked about them. Um, I want to ask, I mean, what, I, what I'm asking here is when you ask the question of Cop City and, um, and the stakes, maybe let's, let's bring it even further out than even the, just the election. Let's talk about democracy itself. What are the stakes for democracy? Yeah, and I appreciate you saying that. I mean, at core, at the core, this this is a matter of life and death for somebody. Yes, in Atlanta, right? So yes. we should. I should start there. That's good. In terms of um, in terms of the stakes and how it connects to our democracy, we're also in a time where our democracy is fragile. We want yeah. people to have faith in our democracy. They want to know that it works for them. We've mm-hmm. done everything that we can to make sure that people's voices are heard. So they took time out to sign a petition and go through this process. Mm-hmm. What we want to see happen is we, we, we want them to decide, right? But it's not just about this one decision. So that's what I was talking about when I um, talked to, briefly about co-governance as well, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. We want people to feel like they are a part of their democratic process. Mm-hmm. We want elected officials who understand that to the extent they can engage and that's a continual engagement, not just around elections. Since they can engage, it helps them because it's informing your policymaking. Mm-hmm. And then when we talk about our democratic institutions, we want them to be sound. We're in a state where the the secretary of state ran for governor and stole that election, if I'm being very candid, using the powers that he had as secretary of state to purge voters who organizations on the ground and others work tirelessly to bring into the democratic process. You should want people to be a part of the political process. Yeah. He did everything that he could to disenfranchise those folks. And we just, we just received another notification about a week ago that about 180,000 additional voters will be purged or have been purged. So this is not something that has stopped. 180? Wait, wait, you can't just blow breeze past that. Wait a minute. Let me ask you this. How many people were purged in that election um, where earlier that you said we lost because of the purging? You know, I don't remember. I don't I don't want to throw a number out that's not accurate. But Mm -hmm. Stacey Abrams lost that race by about 50,000 votes. It was well over that number. And so that I can say with all certainty. And now and now we have one hundred and eighty thousand. That's a city. That's a city that has been disenfranchised, that is not allowed to exercise their rights of citizenship. Can I just say very quickly, 
like I want to get all theological on it, okay? Because <laughs> that's what that's what I do, right? So democracy, like true democracy, is at its very base, it's about one person, one vote. Like the at its purest level, it is about the individual having a say and every individual having a say. Now, in our kind of democracy, the kind that we talk about, like American-grade democracy, we go further than that. We talk about it. It's institutional. And the institutions exist and the systems exist in order to protect the minorities, believe it or not, that we are not just a majority rule nation. We have checks and balances by the rule of law that say the majority can't just have everything at once because we need to protect the lives of those that don't have enough votes to protect themselves, right? So so that's the kind of democracy we say we have. And yet we are allowing a state, and not just one state, because I know this is not just Georgia, right? This is also happening in Texas. It's happening in Florida. It's happening in Ohio. Or, I mean, you know, in, in, in spaces, contested spaces like this, Tennessee, where even Pennsylvania actually, my state, right? So my state, we have legislators that are trying, trying to um, to toss votes because they know that this is the only way they can win. They're so focused on winning, they are literally trampling democracy. Now, theologically, democracy is the closest thing that we have to answering the call on the first page of the Bible, that says that every human being is made in the image of God. And what it means for them to be made in the image of God is that they are called and created with the capacity to exercise agency in the world, to make choices that impact the world, to steward the world. That's what it means in the Bible to be human. And so, Democracy at its core is a, is a system of governance that protects the, the human dignity of every person in its jurisdiction, fundamentally, first and foremost, by giving them the vote. So what does it say now that we have a state that is allowed to purge 180,000 votes from the rolls. 180,000 images of God just got mm. squashed, covered over, silenced. Like that, that makes me mad. That makes me incensed that we would even allow that as a society and still have the gall to call ourselves a democracy. So, so you, you said, you know, the, this next election, we have an election that's at stake. And some people would point like, it's all about Trump. It isn't just all about Trump. Yes, it is about Trump. <laughs> I, we do not want, we do not want him back on that, on that, um, in that Oval Office because he has actually vowed, he has vowed to dismantle democracy. But, you know, as one who is a person of color um, with black nephews and fathers actually you know stepdad and and blood father and grandparents and 
aunties and uncles, I know that the rule of law, though it doesn't always work for us, it is, it's our last hope. Without the rule of law, what do we have? We have Jim Crow. I mean, it's heavy. It's heavy. And they're fighting because we're doing something right. Mm -hmm. We are building power. Mm -hmm. We are, we do have agency. And there is so much self-determination that inspires me. Just, and not just, you know, there are folks who work alongside me. And I just, I always feel so honored because of their indomitable spirits. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, there is no option. We do this because we understand our obligation, not because it is a burden, but because it's what we deserve. That's right. Because we have to. We do it because we have to. We have to. We were created to thrive. We were created to flourish. We were created to exercise agency in the world. And so when the powers and the forces amass against us and try to strip our votes, we have to fight back. And that's why, see, for me, I see this as connected to Cop City because the process that's happening right now with Cop City is a process that is silencing votes. It's silencing the capacity of Atlanta's citizens to exercise agency over their their own space, over their, their lives, their futures, their fi- the futures of their families. And that is, um, that's, Undemocracy. It's not democracy. So democracy is at stake even in this cop city struggle. I couldn't agree more. And people feel it. Mm. You know? And and again, mm-hmm. it's like one additional attack. Because to your point, it's happening across the country. Mm-hmm. When we when we talk about democracy, we should be opening up democracy to people. We should do everything we can to make it easy for people to participate and yes. accessible. And so, when, you know, whether it's the purging or we went through exact, exact, you know, signature match or exact match or signature match, which is actually signature match is something that city of Atlanta is pushing now, mm. but all of these tools have been used to suppress our voices and votes. And so again, it is the, automatic voter registration. It is the mail-in ballots. It's yes. making it as easy as possible. And fun. We, and fun. Right, we don't we don't we don't want to just I mean right now they've made it so unfun, right? Like they've they've made it so people have to sit in line they, you know or stand in line for three hours and nobody's allowed to give food and all of those things. Remember, remember when they passed that law in and Georgia? It made it illegal to give people food as they were standing on a line or water. I mean, no, we want people to have a party. Can we make it a party? I mean, like literally, let's have a party as people are standing in line and they shouldn't have to stand in line that long. Why are they having to stand in line that long? It's because polling stations have been closed. Is that right? Yes. So it is that. Um, After the, I think it was a 2018 election, they also found there were unused uh, voter machines in closets or somewhere in polling places. I can't remember where. Um, But yeah, it's it's a both and. Yeah. So, So Brittany, okay. So take us home here. What can we do? to aid the cop city struggle from where we are 
in the world. I mean, we have folks who are literally while listening to this, our conversation from all over the world. There are folks in Australia, there are folks in Japan, there are folks in England, there are folks in New York, there are folks in Kansas, literally there are folks in in Florida and Texas, actually quite a few people in Texas. It always surprises me <laughs> because although Texas... Texas, y'all are struggling, and so we give you we give you your honor. Yes, we do. Um, people, a lot of folk in California. I mean, what can we do to aid this cop city struggle from where we are? Yeah, I appreciate you more than you know. Um, folks can find us online at copcityvote.com. Mm-hmm. Right now, we have a call to our leadership of Atlanta to mm-hmm. verify our petitions. And we are sounding the alarm to move us forward in that process. Okay. We are, because of the ongoing fights with the city of Atlanta and our mayor, we -hmm. have a legal battle that we have to fund because Mm -hmm. we've been in court and there's been a lot of back and forth with the city trying to invalidate this entire process. Mm -hmm. So we're asking people to make contributions if they can. And that's helpful. Yeah. And quite frankly, like amplify what we are doing. Again, the referendum campaign is a part of a larger movement to stop Cop City. And the more we can amplify the voices on the ground of like people who, Lisa, some people took off from work, you know, to do volunteer shifts. And, you know, when school went back, they said, well, I'm busy with my kids, but I'll do the school pickup lines. Like these Mm. are folks care alongside like our organization. So wow. asking that people just amplify this and connect this to your le- local issues as well. Mm. That's right. Do the work, do your own homework. How is Cop City or something close to it? How has um, the ability for people to exercise agency, particularly poor people, particularly people who are brown and black, um, how has their ability to exercise agency in your town or city been diminished, been cordoned, been controlled or contained? How has that, is that happening? What are the parallels? And then take action where you are um, and lift up Cop City, the people who are struggling against it as, um, as examples of ways that we can struggle in our own, in our own local locations. That, that's real. I love that. That's really good. So, you said you said we can send money, and I imagine that that money can take any form. It can be like five bucks if that's all we got, or it can be five hundred, or it could be five thousand, or fifty thousand if that's what we got. Um, but like, is there is there amount that that you are? Is there like a number that you're trying to hit that we can help you help you to raise? Yeah, so I, I don't have that number offhand. What I'll say is that we understand more that there will be a legal challenge. And so mm-hmm. we do think that there's going to be, you know, north of six figures that we'll now have to spend in a legal battle. Mm-hmm. And that was not anticipated because we didn't, we didn't anticipate this level of resistance from the city and wow. from the state. And mm-hmm. so when folks contribute $5, thank you. If you contribute $500, thank you. You know, whatever you can contribute, we are deeply, you know, um, grateful for it. Wonderful. So can I ask you, how would you like to see the church engage in issues like Cop City? Yeah. You know, as people of faith, I think that we have a commitment to justice that we don't, 
we don't all the time talk about in those four walls. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an injustice what's happening to our people as a result of this facility being built. And so I really want to encourage um, people of faith and, and faith communities to lean in and have the hard conversation and not just have the conversation for the sake of having a conversation, but pick a side. Mm. Yes. Silence suggests to us that you have chosen a side and that inaction is read as as opposition, if I'm being honest. You know, I, I just I know that it's hard to have courageous conversations. And so I acknowledge that they tell you don't talk about three things, God, politics and money. And so, you know, it's like you're in a faith community. And so we're talking about God. We're talking about our spiritual connections. So check that off. Get into the political, not because it's political, but because people's lives are at risk. And so if they can lean into it and move people to take action, you know, I think that that would be that would be a great start. Can I just, I want to interject here real quickly, because I know that a lot of people, a lot of people in churches shy away from talking about, quote, politics, because my God, like, you know, to talk politics in church, people are like, oh, but this is going to make the faith feel political. And and then, but that is actually not what we're talking about right now. Politics in its purest form is simply the conversations that people have and the decisions that we make about how the polis, the people, will live together. That's Mm -hmm. all. That's what, that is what politics is supposed to be. It's the conversations we have and the decisions that we make about how we're going to live together. And Cop City is a decision about how we're going to live together. So who, if not the church, should be speaking into this question of how we should be living together. I mean, when Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount and said, blessed are the peacemakers, what he was not saying was blessed are those who keep silent in the face of oppression. What Jesus was saying was, blessed are those who stand up to the powers that are trying to crush the image of God and draw down the power of God to confront them to confront those that are trying to crush the image of God on earth. Blessed are them. Blessed are they. For they will be called children of God. Mm. So how can church communities help increase public safety? So besides Cop City, obviously they can protest Cop City. They can begin to have the conversations. But do you have a sense of what these church communities, what can they do that could actually or do differently, maybe is a better way to put it, that can help increase public safety in our in our communities? Yeah, Lisa, when you say that, I just think of all the props that I I need to give churches because there are already so many gaps that churches fill. Mm -hmm. And so we're mutual aid. You know, churches that um, go beyond the four walls, they feed people, Mm -hmm. they close the gap when people can't make their make ends meet from month to Mm -hmm. month. Mm -hmm. They provide programs for our children, sometimes summers, you know, summer schools and Mm -hmm. camps. So it's already so much that I think churches are doing. Mm -hmm. One thing that I'll say is sometimes churches are acting when government doesn't. 
That's right. And so that's also a, you know, just a consideration. But I, I, I think in terms of what, what could be done differently, it, it's more of lean in more, uh, you know? Yeah. Because I, I honestly, I, I think of, you know, my church, we started talking about, talking about my church and it was always a safe haven. And if we think about the history of churches and our communities in particular, mm-hmm. and how it's so intrinsically linked to mutual aid and making sure that we sometimes, right, fight together. That's for right. Our rights and our freedom. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I yes. think we lean into that. Mm. That is so good. That is so good. Okay. Last set of questions. What is your hope for Atlanta? Yeah. Um, I know that Atlanta is great for people. I want it to, for some people, I want it to be great for all people. Mm. So I want folks to be able to afford to live in Atlanta, to feel good or better about raising their families in Atlanta, to be a part of their own communities and, and feel like they're making decisions you know, in their cities. Mm-hmm. I also, I think, you know, I go back to the core is people love Atlanta, <laughs> right? So they're yeah. in these sites. They're like, no, I love Atlanta. Yeah, like, the ATO. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. So I say that as somebody, I moved here five years ago and mm. the community that I found, both the people who have moved here over the past decade or so and people who were raised here, it's just a sense of pride when you talk about Atlanta, mm. more of that, but mm. more of that for everyone, not mm. connected to a struggle, but connected to the joy, to the arts, to the culture, you know, all the things that Atlanta is known for yeah. without having to leave people behind who live in the city of Atlanta. That is so good. More green space in Atlanta, more parties, you know, more, more um, fun, fun, uh, you know, festivals on the street and lots of great food. More of this, more safety um, for Atlanta, not less of it. I love that. What is your hope for our nation? Candidly, get it together. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> yes, like get it, it yeah. together. Get it together, people. Working families and what we always say for the many. When you think about who deserves it and you think who Mm -hmm. deserves a quality of life, when you think about who deserves to um, to be at the decision making table. Right. Or informing these decisions for the many everyday people. Right. So I if we could be grounded and always look, you talked about the least among us. Right. Mm -hmm. But if, if we think about folks who need it most, I don't come from a political family. Some people say I'm not supposed to be here, mm. but I'm here and I represent my story and the stories of countless others who didn't have everything made ends meet. And I think I have the foresight, you know, to to help inform the direction of this country. And so with yes. all of our intricacies, all of our different backgrounds, ethnicities, dem- you know, demographics, et cetera, like America needs to fully appreciate and understand that what we have on paper is not what we have in practice. And so we need to continue to fight to move towards that, including everyone. Conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This 
is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and wherever our guests lay their head that night. This episode was engineered, edited, and produced by Corey Nathan of Scan Media. And Freedom Road Podcast is executive produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for our updates, which are on Substack. <laughs> I don't know why. Every single time I always end up singing Substack. Maybe, I don't know. It just, it just, it just has a great ring to it. And I'm so excited that we're on Substack. <laughs> so we have great, great, great content that is coming out on Substack from from yours truly, but also from a number of our writers in our global writers group and other folks who are writing for us on a regular basis now. So, so, you know, sign up, we won't fill your inbox. And instead, we're going to fill you with really great, um, deep things to think about and other ways of seeing the world, especially from the perspective of Freedom Road. So we invite you to listen again um, when our next episode comes out. And for those who are on Patreon or are Substack subscribers, you get an extra treat. You get to have some personal time with Brittany Whaley. 